Welcome to This is Modern Rock. I'm Will Westerkow, and this is December 1989. I'm joined today by Orly. What's up? How's it going, Orly? It's so good to be back. It's good to have you back. It feels like a long time. It does feel like a long time, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it was, what, way back in September 1989. But we recorded a long time ago. Okay. (laughs) People do that. Yeah. Let's get into some music. Okay. So... At the beginning of December 1989, Ian McCulloch is still on top of the charts at number one. After one week, though, we have a new top spot. Yep. And it is by an artist named Kate Bush. Mm -hmm. Kate Bush, in 1989, she's putting out her sixth studio album called The Sensual World. Ooh. Don't ever use that word. You know, people have a hard time with moist, and I don't think so, because people say moist, and I think of delicious cake. Mm -hmm. That's really the first word that comes to my mind when someone says moist. Yeah. I don't go the vagina route. But if someone says sensual, there's kind of only one way you can go, and it's gross. Yeah. It's almost like saying sexual, but worse. Worse? (laughs) Yeah. Because it's like you're trying to make it like a beautiful thing. It's It's a a horrible, ugly... Disgusting thing. I mean, it, I could get graphic, but I won't. It's ugly. So don't call it <laughs> sensual. <laughs> All right. Kate Bush, she was writing songs from a very early age. By the time she was a teenager, she had made a demo of over 50 songs, and somehow it ended up in the hands of a friend of a friend, David Gilmore of Pink Floyd. Sure. That's how all of my friends with friends are. Yeah, they're no. friends of friends. Anytime you hear about anyone famous, they're like, oh, they know 40 famous people already. And you're like, oh, I wonder how that happened for them. It does seem to be the case <laughs> that many famous people know a lot of famous people before Beforehand. they're famous. Yeah. They're related usually. Yeah, they're rich. But I mean, that sounds like we're taking away from K. Bush's talent and she's no. very clearly talented. I, I was just going to say 50 songs. I mean, that's a dream for me. Mm-hmm. Even if they're not all golden, it's like, I want to write 50 songs. I remember I did a burst of 12 once and I'm still patting myself on the back. Yeah, that's a lot of songs. <laughs> Good job. And they just have to get them to uh, your friend of a friend. I think it was more like eight times removed and uh-huh. by that time so yeah, diluted you gotta get them into the hands of <laughs> kevin bacon he's not going to help you much exactly so, yeah sorry about that so kate bush gets signed to emi thanks largely to the help of david gilmore and they decide they don't want to rush her into a record while she was under contract awaiting the multiple years before she was allowed to actually record uh, she used some of her advance to enroll in dance classes and take mime lessons and by the time she was allowed to record she had actually amassed over 200 songs they were all sensual you know what she wasn't that sensual back then it took her six albums to, oh. to hit that level of sensuality. So this is her sixth album, yeah, of we're gonna be hearing. Yeah. Oh, you know, really, only a more mature woman, and I don't mean like old. I just mean like one that's put some time in. And mm-hmm. Oh, she be, put some time in. Can be sensual. That's right. You're not born right off the bat sensual. I'm 19, guys, and I'm sensual. <laughs> You're definitely not. Did it sound like Hermie from <laughs> from Rudolph <laughs> the Red Nose? Sensual. <laughs> I want to be a sensual dentist. Yes. Don't. <laughs> no. <laughs> Isn't that terrible? Yeah. I think I had a sensual dentist. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) I got upgrades to composite billings rather than amalgam for free. The free upgrade. (laughs) Nice. And he was, you know, just like very like smooth voice. Mm. You look like you're doing a good job cleaning, but 
we could always do a little bit better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Kate Bush's debut album was released in 1978 when Bush was 19 years old. Uh, some of the songs that ended up on the album she had written when she was as young as 13 years old. And the first single from that album, Wuthering Heights, went to number one on the UK charts and made her the first female to hit number one in the UK with a self-penned song. Wow. Ew. Yeah, is that that's weird, right? I mean, what is that? I feel like that's such a huge combination of things. It's almost like, number one, of course, the industry doesn't give women a chance. Mm-hmm. But also at some point, it's like you buy into it yourself if you're told that. So it's like women don't write songs and then women don't even bother. They go, oh, I'm a singer. Sure. You know, and it became, that's... So I don't know if the stat counts co-written songs or not. Yeah, but this was all her her jam. Yeah, this is this is all, all K. Bush all Wait, the time. Wait, this was her first. This was her first single on her first album. I mean, it, I feel like it's one of my favorite songs of hers. It's great. It's a good song. Yeah. So if you haven't heard Weathering Heights, you know, I actually recommend listening to the song over reading the book. That's my personal feelings. I mean, I enjoyed both. <laughs> <laughs> if you're into that. Yeah. The first time I heard Kate Bush. It was actually kind of unbeknownst to me. I was listening to Peter Gabriel's third self-titled album, the one where his face is all melting on the cover. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the songs really struck me called Games Without Frontiers. Games Without Frontiers. Was she singing on that? She was singing backup on that. Yeah, backup vocals. You know the first time I heard Kate Bush? No. Beavis and Butthead. Of course, Beavis and Butthead. What song was it? <laughs> I don't remember. Was it the sensual world? I think it was, yeah, I think it was later. She definitely seemed sensual in this mm-hmm. video. Okay. So in 1989, Kate Bush releases her sixth album, The Sensual World, which she not only wrote and sang and played on, but she also produced it as well. She's a jack of all trades. I guess so. Do you want to hear a song? Yes. We're going to hear a song called Love and Anger. It hit number one on the modern rock charts and stayed there for three weeks. And Kay Bush claims that this song took her over 18 months to write. It was the most difficult song for her to write on the entire album. At 18 months? Mm-hmm. It's nothing. Well, but think about how fast artists were putting out albums back That's then. That's true. Right? That's like three albums gone by and she still hasn't finished the song. Mm-hmm. It took her over 18 months to write and she doesn't really know what the song is about. Hmm. Also, if you listen closely, you can hear... A friend of a friend, David Gilmore on guitar. Thank you, pal. Let's hear it. Love and Anger. I mean, overall, I think it's a really good song, but it's not necessarily like my cup of tea. Mm-hmm. So like I can listen to it and go like, that's really good. I think this is a well-written song. I like listening to her sing and it's, it's super interesting. Yeah. But I probably wouldn't be like, I have to own this and listen to it frequently. Okay. I actually really like this song and the more I listen to it, the more I like it. Yeah. You're like, I can do this more. I think I can too though. So maybe it's a grower and that's totally fine. Not everything has to be like, 
punch you in the face right away. Yeah. But and this is but, the first time I've heard this you song. You know, speaking of punch you in the face, though, one thing that I really like about this song is that it's tough. Like, it's a tough song. Oh, yeah. But without sounding macho or dumb or, or cliche. Like masculine. Like, yeah. It's like, I mean, it's got this really hard-hitting drum, like, Yeah. You know, I it's got... Just, always have a thing against a choir of children singing in chorus it's yeah. not for me i mean i sort of know what you mean but i don't have a problem with it in the song i'm problemed and once again you know i'll bring up pink floyd i was gonna say it's a little too another brick in the wall another brick in the wall that's the only people they get to do it they did it yeah it's done don't do it anymore i don't need to hear children's choir in the background say, song. no aeroplane no <laughs> that's not even a choir that's just like a bunch of kids singing badly and that's mm-hmm. all right it just makes it seem like I'm in a dystopian soundtrack. I don't know. It's just not for me. That's fine. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you know what? One thing I forgot to mention earlier was, you know, I told you about those mime lessons and those dance lessons and all that stuff. Yeah, I totally pictured like that. I'm rolling my eyes. Uh I wish there was something I could say that was like the equivalent to eye roll. By the time she was doing her second album, she was putting on this crazy stage show that involved up to 17 costume changes. (laughs) (laughs) Which is absurd because how many songs was she playing? Was she switching costumes on every single song? Yeah, she's like Chris Cornell on his guitar. Do you think it was just the like she started out wrapped up in tons of clothes and just like removed layers? I hope so. <laughs> she came out looking like a big fat person yeah. and then just kept taking more clothes off until she got sensual on stage. <laughs> big fat people can be sensual. That's I knew it. I know I don't come on. You know <laughs> what I mean. I meant like covered in layers of clothes. Yeah, you're I mean wearing seventeen layers of clothes, not that sensual. Not that sensual. I know what you mean. She's also the first rock artist to use a wireless headset microphone since the nineteen sixties. Yeah, and I'm sure she was the one that made it look cool. It was made out of a wire coat hanger. Are you serious? Yeah. But come on, like, would we have had Madonna, like, dancing and singing on stage without Kate Bush and her 17 costume changes, wire (laughs) hanger microphone? She sounds really cool. I'm sad I didn't know about this at the time. And I'm sad that I missed it. I didn't even know she was a dancer. Yeah. But then she stopped doing shows. Like, just, I don't know when, but it's pretty early on. And then she just didn't do shows for, like, decades. That's crazy. Yeah. I really know nothing about her, like, personally, so mm-hmm. all the stories are neat and fun. Yeah, her favorite color, chartreuse. You don't know that. I don't. And did I sound sarcastic the whole time? No. Okay. Wait, was that sarcastic? <laughs> Stop. Do I? No, I don't think so. Okay. Kate Bush couldn't stay on top the entire month. The last week of December, she's displaced by the Jesus and Mary chain. New sound. Yeah. Barreling in. Yeah. Some Scottish bros. Are they bros? Yeah, the Reeds. There's no ladies in that band? I meant that the two main guys are actually brothers. Oh, yeah. I thought you were like, they're like broed out. Yeah, no, they're not, no. They're not like uh, wearing the upside down visor. I'm like, <laughs> the Jesus and Mary chain were frat boys? You guys ready to rock, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can see why that would be confusing. Yeah. Though. Turns out they were really douchey bros. No, they were brothers. William Reed, Jim Reed, and then some other guys. Okay. The Jesus and Mary Chain formed in 1983. They were originally called the Poppy Seeds, and then they changed their name to Death of Joey. Dude, you guys, do you know where heroin comes from? It's Poppy Seeds. <laughs> <laughs> the name the Jesus and Mary Chain still remains something of a mystery. There's been rumors that it was taken from a line in a Bing Crosby film, mm. and that it was taken from an ad on a cereal box. No. 
No, that, that doesn't make any sense, does it? No, this is not talking oh, about Jesus on this. Cereal. Oh, the Jesus and Mary chain. Oh, no. send away for that. That's Maybe nothing. they have more religious cereal boxes in, in Scotland oh, than they do. Jesus and Mary chain. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know. No, like a necklace. Yeah, I mean, it could be. I don't know. I was pictured as something more abstract for some reason. Yeah. So these guys were known for putting on very, very short concerts in their oh, early days. Oh, good. Like, really? Like under 20 minutes. He just came out looked at everyone on stage, knocked down the microphone, walked off. Yeah. Well, they also played with their backs to the audiences. Yeah, they played with something, all right. <laughs> and, you know, this is the thing. This sounds totally terrible to me. Like, I can just imagine these guys coming out. They're, you know, all on drugs or whatever. They turn their backs to the audience, make a bunch of loud feedback, noise, and then, like, leave after 12 minutes. But... I've seen interviews with other bands, and they were just astounded. They're like, this was the greatest thing. I'm so yeah, inspired. Give me a break. <laughs> You're not inspired by that? You don't want to run out and... Look, if those guys can do that and be a band, then you can be a band. Anyone can be a band. They would call the cops on me. If my favorite band came out and they played 12 minutes with their backs to me and mm-hmm. ran out as a young person at mm-hmm. a concert, I would have been like hysterical. Because it was so exciting? No. Because I was so <laughs> upset. No. What might you have done? Oh, like screamed and yelled and like pushed people around and like got into people's face. Started a riot in a sense. I, I would have hoped... Uh, and then I'd go to their tour bus, <laughs> scream at knocking them Knocking on the windows. You oh, guys, yeah. get back out here. You owe me a show. Definitely. I've done that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who have you done that for? I've definitely yelled at bands for playing too short. Yeah. Like when you walk by their bus. Yeah, for sure. I know you can see me. 40 minutes. You suck. <laughs> <laughs> so the Jesus and Mary Chain were influenced by the Velvet Underground, the Stooges, the Shangri-Las, Ronettes. But just, without any hooks. <laughs> <laughs> so they decided to take uh, the recipe that the Ramones were using, which was, you know, kind of girl group sound. But they decided rather than go like the fast punk rock route, they were going to make it super noisy, super loud. So there's like these catchy girl group type songs hidden in there yeah but you like really have to listen hard for them listen hard yeah i just my ear is not sophisticated enough for that so their first album psycho candy is considered massively influential i literally can't <laughs> listen to this album i mean i've tried and i'm not saying it's bad but it actually gives me headaches like it does i'm not exaggerating it induces headaches yeah i always think it's funny that you're like Everyone seems to like this. I'm going to really give it a try for like 12 listens. I do that. I've given I know. I've given myself 12 headaches from this album. <laughs> and this is me. Put on the first song. The first 30 seconds are terrible. I never want to hear this again. <laughs> well, people love this album. No, I'm sure. Yeah. People love all sorts of things. Yeah. People love peeps. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I mean, yeah, fair point. But the third album, which is called Automatic... The Jesus Mary Chain had abandoned drummers altogether and decided to use a drum machine. And they'd largely abandoned using a bass player, opting instead for a keyboard bass. And they also largely abandoned their extreme noise feedback sound that had marked their debut. Okay. We're going to hear the first single off of Automatic. It's called Blues from a Gun. It went to number one for three weeks. And that makes it not only the final number one song on the modern rock charts of 1989 but also mm-hmm. the first number one song on the modern rock charts of the 90s. Oh, because so, it did the old jump over. Mm-hmm. So it holds that distinction. All right. Let's hear it. Blues from a gun. Stone dead, triple, dying in a 
I take back everything I said. I loved it. I thought it was so yeah. something I would have listened to when I was like 18. Yeah. Oh my gosh. At the club. Dancing, <laughs> loving it. It was like industrial pop. Yeah. That was like exactly what I wanted. Yeah. I wish I knew about that. I kind of wish I did too. I was not into the industrial scene like you were, but probably because it wasn't pop enough for me. Yeah, it wasn't pop enough for me either. I wasn't like totally into it by choice, but some of it, you know, like I loved Marilyn Manson. I loved Nine Inch Nails. Stepping away from it now, obviously, I don't feel the same way about it, mm-hmm. but it filled like a need I had in my late teens for yeah. sure. Yeah. It's like so much angst. But, you know, it's like this throwback 50s, 60s, like rock and roll yeah. kind of sound. It was very listenable to me. I liked that I could hear the vocals, which is poppy and a lot of um, industrial music. It's like really distorted. Mm-hmm. And, and it seemed somehow sad and fun. Yeah, I know what you mean. And sometimes a lot of the girl group songs sound like that too, especially like the African-American ones. They're capturing that vibe. Sure. What about the structure of this song? The big vocal hook. Not till the very end. Yeah, it happens once at the very end. For a and when long it happens, time. it's like a full minute and a half. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. I like when I hear a song and I'm like, what? We get to hear the chorus once? Yeah. And then you listen to it again and they, they kind of like fake you out. Like you, you're expecting it to come in yeah. earlier and they just do like a big instrumental break with some kind of like heavy T Rex style guitar yeah. chords. Yeah, I enjoyed it um, more than I thought I would because I've listened to that first album too and it was like, not for me, Yeah, you know, but it seems like a different band. Sure. It kind of seems like they were like, yeah, we did that. Cool, cool. We're going to try this out now over here. Yeah. So So that's it for number ones for the 80s. Now we're on to the 90s? No, no, no. Oh. We have to go below the top. number one. Got it. Yeah. So the next song we're going to listen to, it hit number five on the modern rock Mm -hmm. charts. And it's by an artist named Lenny Kravitz. Mm, good old Leonard Kravitz. Yeah. And he's perhaps best known for his hit single, Are You Gonna Go My Way? Or maybe Fly Away. Yeah. Fly Away was probably a bigger hit for him, mm-hmm. I swear. But I think we should all know him as the artist who won the Grammy Award for Best Male Rock Vocal Performance four years in a row <laughs> from 1999 to 2002. <laughs> Can you believe that? I had That's no, really late. I had no idea he was even putting music out in 1999 to 2002. Because nobody, the Grammys are irrelevant. Well, yeah, but... So the only people picking up Grammys is him, Taylor Swift, and the Foo Fighters? I guess. So Leonard Kravitz... Yeah, Lenny Kravitz. He is the child of a white TV news producer father and a black actress mother, none other than Roxy Roker, who played one half of the first interracial married couples to appear on primetime TV on the Jeffersons. Mm -hmm. And if you recognize that last name Roker, that's because he is a cousin of Al Roker. So he knows someone famous. Oh, he knows... (laughs) He's all, his whole family's famous. Every, yeah. Everything about him is famous. Don't you just love picturing Lenny Kravitz and Al Roker like hanging out at family get-togethers? Like, hey, man, what's up? Tell me about the weather. <laughs> <laughs> Lenny started playing music at an early age. He went to Beverly Hills High School. Sure he did. With Nicolas Cage and Slash. <laughs> and at the same time they all were there? Yeah. Lenny Kravitz is the same age as Nicolas Cage? Yes. Nicolas Cage seems 20 years older. 
He acted in TV commercials as a young man. Yeah, right? And he played Cinna <laughs> in the Hunger Games. He's continued to act. Yeah. Well into his 70s. How old is uh, <laughs> how old is Nicolas Cage? 64? <laughs> yeah. What about Slash? I have no idea what that guy looks like. He just looks oh, like just, hair. He's hair in a hat. <laughs> And glasses. <laughs> it's a costume. So by the mid-80s, Kravitz had decided he wanted to record an album, but he couldn't find any studios who were interested. So he decided to record it himself under the name Romeo Blue. Ooh. Yeah. Good I'd, stuff. I'd buy some Romeo Blue. Would you? No. <laughs> <laughs> so by 1988, he'd finished most of the recording. And record companies were calling. They liked what they heard. So he dropped the name Romeo Blue. He went back to Lenny Kravitz, which, by the way, not a cool name. No. Anyway, so this album finally gets released in 1989. It's his debut this is album. This first album. First right. album. Uh-huh. Debut album called Let Love Rule. And the album was met with mixed reviews, but it sold pretty well, especially in Europe. Kravitz played just about every instrument on the entire album. Wow, good for him. And the lead single was Let Love Rule. That's what we're going to hear. And um, for those of you who care, the video was directed by his then-wife, Lisa Bonet. I think there were a lot of flowers in it. I'm sure. Let Love Rule, it's got to have flowers. It's time to take a I'm going to do a total flip-flop like I did with Jesus and Mary Chain, except the other way. Okay. So I thought I liked that song Mm -hmm. until I found out it was like six minutes long. (laughs) First of all, heavily Beatles influenced. Oh, yeah, big time. Like crazy. It's like Hey Judy now. I was going to say, he he heard Hey Judy. He's like, whoa, you can do that? I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. Two minutes of outro. Yeah. Nothing against Lenny Kravitz. He's not the greatest singer. I was kind of surprised by that. He might have gotten better as a vocalist because he did win those four Grammys in a row. But Mm -hmm. at this point, yeah, his vocals are not that strong. No, I mean, he's in key, Mm -hmm. but he doesn't really have like a lot going on. And he seems like he's working really hard to be where he is. Right. It doesn't seem like it's comfortable or natural to him. And neither is lyrics. It was painful, some of it, but you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not opposed to the sentiment of the song. I like the sentiment of the song, and I like singing along for a little bit, but yeah. it, it drags for sure. <laughs> Did you hear there was like a dueling saxophone at a certain point? Yeah, I liked it. Yeah, I liked that too. That's one of my favorite parts. Yeah. They're like, over each other. Yeah, and the one was like lead, and the other one was kind of doing rhythm sax. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed that. Lenny Kravitz did not play those. I don't think so, no. no. But he did play organ, the organ. keyboard, bass, guitar, guitar. vocals, yeah. backing vocals. Yeah. I still think it's kind of endearing. Like, I think so he's, too. He's working hard. He's doing it all himself, him and his wife, and they, they're this team. They're shooting the video. They're recording it himself. They're just himself. a famous couple, you yeah. know, trying to make it in the <laughs> biz. <laughs> You're, I mean, it would be more endearing if he was just like some schmuck from the Midwest or whatever, but... Yeah, without uh, like a beautiful actress wife. Yeah. Uh-huh. But he's still, you know... He's been plucky and... Um, he was one of the first people to rock a nose ring. Oh. I had a nose ring early. I was 13 and now it's not early. 13-year-olds have nose rings all the time. But back then, very few of us did, especially in small towns. Inspired by Joan Osborne? 
pre-Joan Osborne. Thank you very much. Inspired by probably four non-blondes. Okay. Because I'm really cool. Did you wear Linda Perry's hat? Uh, no. The big floppy velvet? No, <laughs> no, 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 no. So here's a super fun fact. In 2002, Tom's Shoes let Lenny Kravitz design some shoes for the company. And one of the designs he did have the lyrics for Let Love Rule all over them. I would love to wear the lyrics to Let Love Rule (laughs) all the time. (laughs) So you might be able to go on eBay and get yourself some Let Love Rules. Christmas is coming up. (laughs) Modern Rock Toms. Yeah. yeah. And are they still doing that thing? If you buy some Let Love Rules Toms, are they going to... I think they probably just give some... Some regular Toms. Yeah, regular Toms. Okay, let's go to the fourth song. We're going to talk about an artist who hit number eight on the modern rock charts, and his name is David Byrne. Okay. David Byrne. He was already solo? Sort of. Yeah, so David Byrne is most well-known for being the lead singer of Talking Heads. Mm -hmm. And what can we say about the Talking Heads? It's a great band. Yeah. They put out a lot of great albums. They had a ton of great songs. Unfortunately, Talking Heads never got to really take full advantage of the modern rock charts because they'd already broken up i guess huh well not exactly by 1989 which is where we are now yeah they aren't technically broken up okay but they are essentially broken up and they're only going to release one more single before the official breakup actually Um, happens which is saxon violins i think okay and actually they were all like doing their own thing at this point yeah and so david byrne he had flirted with doing non-Talking Heads projects before. Mm -hmm. As far back as 1981, he had worked on an album with Brian Eno and released that. He collaborated with Philip Glass in 1986 to create music for the film True Stories. Okay. And in 1987, he collaborated on the score to the film for The Last Emperor, which he won an Oscar for. I did see that movie. Yeah. So you heard some David Byrne score in there. Mm -hmm. So in 1989, he released his first true solo album called Ray Momo. And this album is, it's a continuation of his, I guess, explorations into world music that Mm -hmm. he had been doing with Talking Heads. Mm -hmm. So if you're, if you've listened to the Talking Heads, you know, I mean, they're considered a new wave band, but it was also, it was kind of punk in a sense, kind of post-punk. And a few albums in, they started exploring world music, a lot of world rhythms in particular. So with Ray Momo, David Byrne is getting heavily influenced by Afro-Cuban sounds and Brazilian songs. Yeah. This album, Ray Momo, was produced by Steve Lillywhite. And many songs on Ray Momo feature Steve Lillywhite's wife, Kirsty McCall, who is perhaps best known as the female voice on the Pogue's Christmas song, oh. Fairy Tale of New York. Mm-hmm. Is that the best rock Christmas song? It's so sad. It's a great song, but it's like, it doesn't make me feel Christmassy at all. Really? No. Oh, I love it. It's it Christ- gets me in the Christmas spirit. To like get drunk and get bailed out of jail? Yeah. It's, it's like a movie. It's like a fun Christmas movie. I see what you mean there, but I like Christmas to make me happy. All right. So David Byrne had been putting songs together for this album for quite a while. At least one song, uh, Loco de Amor, dates back to 1986 uh, when it was featured in the Jonathan Demi film Something Wild. 
We're going to hear, though, the second single from this album called Dirty Old Town. Sounds gross. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, not the song, the Dirty Old Town. Yeah, well, yeah, it's, it's a Dirty Old Town. Yeah. Here it is. Dirty Old Town. Yeah, I enjoyed that song. And I talked about the Talking Heads being weird, and a lot of it is weird, I think, because of the way David Byrne sings, but mm-hmm. it seemed like he had toned it way down. Really? I mean, it's still weird, but it seemed a lot like more even and smooth. You know what I love about the way David Byrne sings? So a lot of singers, their singing voice sounds absolutely nothing like their speaking voice, maybe because they have an accent or maybe because they're putting on something yeah. or whatever. David Byrne, when he talks, he sounds exactly like the way he sings. Like Goofy? Like kind of off or kind of weird. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, yeah. he's he said that he is probably borderline Asperger's, mm-hmm. if that means anything. Mm-hmm. And maybe that explains a lot or I don't know. I mean, yeah. I mean, I could have said that probably too. Yeah. About him. Okay. I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> about yourself? Probably someone thinks aren't so. We, aren't we all borderline <laughs> Asperger's? And I guess some of us are a little closer to the line than others. Yeah. You thought he was toning it down a little bit? I think so. I do. I think he was toning it down a little bit. And I, you know, this was like a really straightforward, classically structured song, mm-hmm. you know, but it told an interesting story. Yeah. I thought. Well, straightforward, classically structured, except like, with very non-traditional rock rhythms and. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But it was still like verse, chorus, verse, chorus. But yeah, everything else about it was for rock music was mm-hmm. very different. You yeah. Know? I'm sure people all over the world have heard music that sounds like that. Yeah. And you know, yet I can totally hear this being a talking head song. Like he absolutely could have done this with the talking heads. It might've sounded a little more rock. We might've had some yeah. heavier drums in there. Or we might've had some more keyboard or you something. No, really? But Cause I was thinking not really. Yeah. I was thinking that a big part of talking heads is kind of his like, manic spastic way of delivering things Mm -hmm. and he didn't do that at all in this song i know what you mean so in that sense no and there's the energy around the whole thing seemed different yeah it was it was a little more subdued yeah but it wasn't subdued like it was it it wasn't a lethargic song no No, not at all no but yes if you are holding it up to the standard of the talking heads and their energy mm-hmm. it's subdued i wonder if also he felt confined lyrically within talking heads because if you listen to the lyrics of this song it does seem like a far cry from the type of lyrics he was doing for talking heads mm-hmm. yeah i feel like they tended to be a little more oblique in the talking head songs and this seemed from the He's lyrics I gathered, story. yeah it seemed more straightforward mm-hmm. i got that too now, if you want some David Byrne toms. What would they say? Same as it ever was. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. I thought Once in a Lifetime was a new song because my radio station played it like it was new in 1994. 
Yeah, so that's 1989. That's the 80s. The 80s are done. Wow. So now modern rock hits the 90s. Yeah. What do you think about the 80s? Over? I mean, we only got to hear a year and a half a year of and the a 80s. Half. You know, apparently I did not know that much about late 80s modern rock. I was really surprised by the same exact thing. Mm-hmm. I considered myself to be very knowledgeable about alternative rock i did not consider myself to be very knowledgeable but i feel like i listened to a lot of alternative rock but it was all in the 90s and so whatever it seeped in from the 80s i feel like i got a good dose of that and i did not get a good dose of what this podcast has been covering there were a lot of songs over the last two seasons of the show that were new to me me too for Um, sure most of them really yeah yeah so the 90s are coming Mm -hmm. can you remember being excited about the 90s like this is 1989 is December 89. It's almost the 90s. Oh my gosh, that's a big thing. I mean, it was kind of cool that there was going to be a decade changeover, but I think I was too young to really care. You know, when you're that young, I mean, maybe you were not only thinking about yourself, but I was like, I'm going to be tan. (laughs) I'm a double digit person now. Yeah. (laughs) That's kind of what I was thinking. 10 years old. Yeah, I can get my nose ring. Well, no, I didn't think about that then, but, you know, I was just thinking about where I was going to get my double tongue shoes. <laughs> I, I missed out on that fad completely. I had no idea that was a thing until someone brought it up a month or two ago. <laughs> really? Yeah. Double tongue shoes? Never heard of them. I, um, I don't know. I feel like there should be some kind of celebration or some big to do, but uh, we're just, I feel like we're just fading into the nineties. Um, I don't know. I mean, George, Bush, H.W. Yeah, is our president. Yeah, I don't know. Those... Cool. Let's celebrate in 92. How about that? It seems more celebratory in 92. Okay. Well, then I guess that's it for season two of This is Modern Rock. Yeah. We're going to be going on a three-month break between seasons. So we'll be back three months from now. Okay. Don't think that we just vanished into the ether. Yes. When the new episodes don't appear, it's just because we're getting ready for season three. That's right. 1990. Researching. Recording. Recording. Yeah. We're going to have all kinds of great guest hosts. We're going to have all kinds of great music. More facts. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks. Looking for, forward to the 90s. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in. Orly, thanks for joining us again. Yeah, of course. Thank you. And uh, I hope you all had a great 1989. Yeah. Have a great end of 2017. Yeah. Bye. Bye.